Jesus told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then has it weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking uh, and reading and studying the life of the early church, what it looked like. What did it look like when that mustard seed burst forth and started to grow? What did the tree look like? And did it look like the church as we see it today? Okay, We're going to have an opportunity to be able to open our eyes to that time period and see it for what it really was. Okay, Who were the church fathers? Who were the church fathers? Tradition gives us four criteria, if you're taking notes. Four criteria by which you can judge a church father. Who's in the list and who's not to be in the list. First of all, he must be a Catholic in good standing with the church. He can't be excommunicated. Okay? Second, he must be orthodox. His teaching must be orthodox. It must be true, obvious. He must be a man known for his holiness, renowned for his holiness. And fourth, he must be a person of antiquity. The first three, the first three kind of can be bundled together. Look, he's got to be a faithful follower of Christ. Okay? But the fourth one mm, is a little more difficult. He must be a person of antiquity. A church father, don't we have church fathers today? Don't we have a church father sitting in the back of the room right now? Yes. And if we ever cease to have fathers of the church, the church will cease to exist. We must have men who bring life into the church, in a sense, who bring new children, who give birth, in a sense, to the new children of the church. That's a process that must continue on. And so when we say the church fathers are people of antiquity, it's a proper term, yes, speaking of the men that lived to the closest to the time of Christ, but we also have to remember that that church never died. It continued to live on. And so through every age, there are men who we call church fathers, both east and west, okay? Technically speaking, the age of the church fathers ended around the 7th century. I say around because in the East, 
we identify certain, certain uh, teachers as probably being the last ones in the West, others and their dates don't jive exactly. And in fact, St. Bernard of Clairvaux is oftentimes put in the list in the West of the Church Fathers. St. Bernard of Clairvaux died in the 12th century, quite late, but he's oftentimes put in that list because his teachings, his writings on Scripture and on theology most closely reflect those of the church fathers. And if, in fact, if you read him, you'll see that his, his, his prose are just absolutely beautiful. His insights are, are truly apostolic. Okay? So you can see that that age kind of continues on. But technically speaking, 6th, 7th century, maybe at last in the East, St. John Damascene would be considered the last of the church fathers. St. John Damascene uh, was the great defender of icons against the iconoclast heresy. Okay, I meant to bring his icon to, or his, his relic tonight because I have it. I'll bring it next week. Saint John Damascene. D A M A S C E N E. Thank you. If I misspell anything up here, I'm dyslexic, so that's why I get to hide behind that. Father Adrian Fortescue says about the apostolic fathers. Who are the apostolic fathers who will be studying? Father Fortescue says they are first in order of time and first in importance in every way. They are the immediate disciples of the apostles whose age ends at latest by the year 150. Okay? They were men that were very, very early. Okay, and he doesn't mean they were born in 150. He means they died around 150. Okay, these were men who knew the apostles, who studied under them, who were appointed as bishops by them. Who's included in that list? Uh, Saint Barnabas. Okay, a disciple of Saint Paul. Okay, um, Pope Saint Clement of Rome. Depends on what list you count, but the third or fourth Pope of Rome. Okay? He lived sometime 30 to 100. We don't know, the dates are not exact. Okay? Ignatius of Antioch, who we'll be studying tonight. St. Polycarp, his disciple, who also was a student of St. John the Beloved. The shepherd of Hermas, Papias of Heropolis, and that's about the end of the list. It's not, it's, it's not uh, a lot, okay? I asked our, um, our bookstore down in Fairfax, um, Pasco Lamb, to order some books, some small books um, put out by Penguin Books called The Early Christian Writings, okay? Or The Early Christian Writers or something like that. Anyways, you'll see it there. They're not going to have it for a few more days, maybe not till next Monday, but they're going to get 15 copies, and I highly, highly recommend that you get that text, even if you cannot read it right now. It's something you have to have in your library as a reference. Okay? And what does it include? These very texts. The writings of Ignatius, the martyrdom of St. Polycarp, and so forth. The, the epistle of St. Clement of Rome, writing to the Corinthians. Very important text. Okay? Clement of Rome, the epistles of Ignatius, initially were considered by the Christian communities to be part of what we would consider sacred scripture. They did not have this nice handy Bible sitting in front of them. 
Okay, nice bound up by, by uh, Father Fessio. Okay, no, they received the letters of the apostles. They received the letters of those that had been appointed by the apostles, and they read those letters in the church. The epistles of St. Ignatius were read in the church. The, the, the distinctions of a canon were not quite made yet, and so these letters that we have ex- exposure to were held in great honor by the early Christians. And it's a tragedy that most of us... How many of you have read the letters of, of Ignatius of Antioch? There you have it. The martyrdom of St. Polycarp. The martyr of St. Polycarp is, and the letters of St. Ignatius, unbelievable texts. St. Clement also. So these are very important texts. I highly recommend that you get them. For me, the apostolic fathers, the fathers in general, but primarily the apostolic fathers are very important because when I was 20 years old, 21 years old, I met a girl, a Jehovah's Witness. She didn't come knocking on my door, but I met her, and uh, we quickly fell in love. She had been ex, or disfellowshipped, excommunicated, by the watchtower. I was living outside of the communion of the Catholic Church. I was never, no longer going to Mass. But we both held, we didn't, we didn't have the moral strength to live it out, but we both, both held certain ideas that we had grown up with. And so when we began to talk about our relationship, we talked about what we believed, the issue of Jesus Christ came up. And she told me what she believed about Jesus Christ. And I said, I don't accept that he was just a man. I believe he was also God. Not that I was living that belief out, but I held it intellectually. And so we both opened the scriptures together and in all honesty made made an agreement that we would study together to discover the truth. And whatever that truth was, no matter what our parents had told us, I still remember having this discussion, that we would follow it that I would become a Jehovah's Witness if necessary. She would become a Catholic if necessary. I don't know, we'd become Mormon if necessary, God forbid. Okay? Well, I was self-employed at the time and she wasn't. And never get into a theological discussion with a Sicilian. Okay? Because I naturally went straight down to the local library and took out a stack of books, like, I'm not kidding, it was big, and I started reading, and I didn't go to work for a couple of days, okay, I could do that, and guess what I found? I found that the early church was Catholic, and I found it through reading the writings of the apostolic fathers, and there was nothing that could change my opinion of that, because I saw men that knew the apostles. I first started reading the scriptures and and the lives of the apostles. Men willing to die for what they had seen. Therefore, I could not deny that Jesus Christ had truly done these things. And the next question was, would or had the church lost its way in those early days? The study of the church fathers, especially the apostolic fathers, is the playing field of apologetics. It is here, in these years, that that theologians will claim that either the church was Catholic or the Catholic church had lost its way. And the church had gone off following Christ, and the Catholic church had gone off in a different direction. 
no good theologian will deny that the early church was indeed Catholic. But had it lost its way, many Protestants today would claim that by 325, uh, right around that time period, with the conversion of Constantine the Great, the church was corrupted. Those that claim that have to deal with the apostolic fathers. The Jehovah's Witnesses will claim on the other hand that with the death of the last apostle, John the Beloved, in about 100 A.D., that the church lost its way then. That these weeds that I read to you in the parable came up and choked the life of the church. They have to deal on their hand with what we're going to be studying tonight. The sacred scriptures and the apostolic fathers. Do the two jive together or not? And Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, these men give us insight into what the early church was doing. And we have an opportunity then over the next four weeks to judge for ourselves. Are the Jehovah's Witnesses right? Are the Mormons right? I guarantee you when that Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door and you tell them you're a Catholic, they're going to say, oh, I have the greatest respect for the Catholic Church. Because if I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness, I, prom- I would become a Catholic. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. But it's here in these early days that they believe that their theology more closely reflects that of sacred scripture. We have a chance to put that to the test. We read the apostolic fathers, we read the church fathers for their theology, their spirituality, their example, their witness to the truth of the early church. Our program over the next few weeks will be a little unusual for the Institute. I don't want to stand up here and lecture to you about the church fathers. It would be like having a Bible study without Bibles, which unfortunately is very popular, I understand, in the Catholic Church, not with the Institute of Catholic Culture. I want you to have a chance to be able to read the text yourselves. And so here's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. We're going to spend the first 15 to 20 minutes, we're going to spend a little more time tonight, because it's our first night, 15 to 20 minutes, a little introduction into who this person was. That's number one. We'll spend about 20 to 25 minutes reading a portion of their life or their text that they wrote. Because it's important. I realize that reading can be deadly, but I made sure that we made the copies for you guys. If you don't have them, don't worry. We'll get them to you. I want you to be able to taste it for yourself. So we'll spend 20 to 25 minutes doing that. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back together for the last 15 minutes or so of a a kind of an informal discussion. I'll have some questions for you, but also be able to, to just listen to your comments and your thoughts about the text itself. So if you bring a pen with you, all the better. And you can make comments, make notes to yourself, and then as we're discussing this, we can look at it a little closer. Who are we going to be studying? First, we're going to study tonight Ignatius of Antioch, the Bishop of Antioch. Next week, St. Polycarp, who was his disciple. They were both disciples of St. John the Beloved. Okay, And they were both bishops of the church. St. Ignatius lived about the year 50 to about 117. Again, the years are not exact. Um, St. Polycarp from the year 70 to 155. He lived a little later than than Ignatius, but their lives overlapped. He was his disciple and through him to to John the the Apostle. 
Third, we are not going to be bound exactly by the criteria I set out. Because the first two, I believe, will give us enough of an insight, a taste into the apostolic fathers that you can read on your own, go further with with your study. The third person we're going to be studying is not an apostolic father. In fact, she's not a father at all. She is a church mother. And you say, oh, here he goes with liberalism. No, not at all. Not at all. There were men and women in the church, in the early church, as there are today, Mother Teresa being one, who is truly a mother of the church, who many people go to to learn their faith, to be, in a sense, reborn in Christ. And so we are going to be studying the life of Mary of Egypt in the third week. She lived in the fourth century. She, she was a convert And she repented by spending a good portion of her life living in the desert on nothing. And she was discovered by a monk out there in the desert. And that monk passed on to his disciples the story of the woman that he met out in the desert. And that tradition of Mary of Egypt has come down to us and is read once a year during Lent in the Eastern churches. And so I chose her because her feast day is right close to when we're going to be reading that. It will also give you a a kind of a taste, a sense of the next stage, the fourth century. And number four, we're going to be reading the life or studying the life of another mother of the church, St. Mary Magdalene. Why are we going to be looking at St. Mary Magdalene? Because St. Mary Magdalene, by tradition, is given the title Apostle to the Apostles. She is an apostolic mother. And why is she called the Apostle to the Apostles? Because it was to her that Christ said, Go and get the disciples and tell them what you have seen. She was the one that brought the news of the resurrection. Our fourth study on the week before Holy Week will be on Mary Magdalene. It will be a Bible study. And we'll be studying Mary Magdalene from sacred scripture. And so I think this will give us enough of an overview, an insight into this early life of the church, uh, leading us up to the great feast of of Easter. St. Ignatius of Antioch, again, lived from about the year 50 AD to 117. He was bishop of the patriarchal see of Antioch. What do I mean the patriarchal see of Antioch? A quick ecclesiology lesson for all of you. When the church spread, when it left Jerusalem, it didn't just go to the little towns out in the middle of nowhere. If you want to spread a message about something important, if you want to get everybody, if you think everybody should wear black suits with a funny Bible tie, (laughs) where are you going to go? To the city, right? Los Angeles, New York, Rome, you name it, Paris. The apostles weren't stupid, and they knew they had something that everyone needed to hear. And so they went to the great cities of the world and preached the news of the resurrection. They went to Antioch in Syria, just north of the Holy Land. They went down south into Egypt, this great city of Alexandria. They went over to the great city of Byzantium and Rome. In fact, Byzantium became a patriarchal see technically later on. Um, but for our purposes, those are the five initial patriarchal sees of the church. 
patriarchs of the church, heads of particular churches within the Catholic Church. The patriarchal see of Rome is where the father, the pope, the papa lives. The patriarchal see of Antioch is where the father, the papa of that church lives. Okay, The Melkite church that you have a chance to go to next Wednesday is from the ancient patriarchal see of Antioch. Okay, So it's a great opportunity for you to taste that aspect of the church. That the church is, part of an, uh, is, is worldwide. It's Catholic. It's all-embracing. Ignatius was the bishop of the patriarchal see of Antioch. In Acts chapter 11, actually, yes, chapter 11, verse 19, we're introduced for the first time to the city of Antioch, and we discover there, if you're taking notes, write that down, chapter 11, verse 19, we discover there the first real, and we could say, heresy that, that developed in the church, and it was the heresy of the Judaizers. Those who believed that Christianity was only for Jews. And if you were not a Jew, you had to become one. You had to be circumcised. And you had to follow the kosher laws. And so forth. And so there began a fight in Antioch. Right? The, the Jews, the Jews had, becoming Christian, then went to Antioch, okay, the closest major city, and preached the resurrection. The question is, who were they going to preach to? Only Jews in Antioch? Or would the Greeks, would the pagans be welcomed? Would the Gentiles be welcomed? And there began to be a fight. Some men went back to Jerusalem and called together the apostles and they held in chapter 15 the first council of the church. If you're writing it down, chapter 15, verse 1 and verse 6 is what you're going to want. And it was over this issue. The apostles gathered together and guess who stood up among them? St. Peter. And he said to the other apostles, You know that I was called from the beginning by the Spirit to become an apostle to the Gentiles. And therefore, I know that we should not lay any further burden on these men than to become Christians. There is no need for them to be circumcised. The council confirmed his thoughts, and Peter quickly left with a group of men from Jerusalem and traveled to Antioch. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, we find him there dealing with that same issue. St. Paul confronts him because Peter kind of backs off of his position that he had taken at the council and was kind of playing funny games with, the, with what he would eat and what, the, what he was telling other people. And Paul comes up to him and confronts him and says, what are you doing You're contradicting the very words that you spoke to us at the council in Jerusalem. Peter repented. By tradition, Peter was the first bishop of Antioch before he went on to Rome. Ignatius, the third in that line or second in that line after Peter in Antioch, was sentenced to death during the reign of Emperor Trajan. Sometime between the year 98 and 117, probably more like about 115, 116. He was sentenced to death in Antioch. A letter from Pliny the Younger, who was governor in Northern Northern Asia Minor, around 111, he had been appointed there by Trajan, gives us a little insight into what was going on in that area of Asia Minor. Pliny writes to Trajan, he says, It is my custom... 
my Lord, to refer all questions about which I have doubts to you. In the examination of Christians, I have never taken part. Therefore, I do not know what the crime is usually punished or, invest, or investigated or to what extent. If the man's old or young or, or, or what, if he repents or he doesn't repent, what do I do with these guys? And he says, after examining them, all that they assert that they have done, the, the amount of their fault or error was this, that they had been accustomed. Now look, Pliny is writing at, at about 111, very early. The amount of their fault was this, that they had been accustomed to assemble on a fixed day of the week. Take a guess. Sunday. Before daylight. Huh? They were getting there so that they could pray together as the sun rose. They could pray towards the east to the rising sun as a symbol of the risen son of justice whom they worshipped. They were accustomed to assemble on a fixed day of the week before uh, daylight and sing in turns or antiphonally a hymn to Christ as God. You've seen this, even the monks do this, right? Singing the Psalms back and forth, back and forth. This was a practice of the Jews. And the Christians, the early Christians were Jews. They took this on. Singing in turns antiphonally a hymn to Christ as a God. And that they bound themselves with an oath not for any crime, but to commit neither theft, nor robbery, nor adultery, nor to break their word, not to deny a deposit when demanded. After these things were done, it was their custom to depart and meet together again to take food. And he goes on to say, but it was just ordinary food. Okay, it was just bread. Some bread and some wine. Okay, as we know from other texts. Because to him, without the eyes of faith... He saw simply common food. I found nothing else than a perverse and excessive superstition. I therefore adjourned the examination and hastened to consult you. The matter seemed to me to be worth deliberating, especially on account of the number of those in danger. For many of every age, every rank, and even both sexes are brought into danger and will be in the future. The contagion of that superstition has penetrated not only the cities, but also the villages and the country places." Trajan writes back to Pliny and says, do not seek out the Christians, but if they are brought to you and they refuse Christ and they offer incense to the gods, then they are to be restored. But if they do not recant their position, they are to be executed. It was at this time that Ignatius was living. The persecution of Trajan was nothing new to the Christians of Asia Minor. In fact, John the Apostle had been arrested earlier on by the emperor Domitian and had been taken to Rome. He had been boiled alive in oil. And he lived to tell the story. The emperor Domitian, afraid of what he saw, did not attempt to kill John again, but exiled him to the island of Patmos, from where he wrote his letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Three of those letters, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philadelphians, and the letter to the Smyrnans, these three cities were also cities that were written to by Ignatius of Antioch as he was being taken to Rome for his martyrdom. It is no small matter for us that he and Ignatius both wrote to the church in Ephesus. For at that time when John was writing his epistle to the, to the church, St. Timothy, the apostle of St. Paul, was living there 
and ruling that city as bishop. In the year 97, Timothy was to be executed, was to be martyred for the faith. I'm going to turn quickly to the epistle of Timothy if you want to go there with me. I can't spend much time. I'm going to just start reading chapter 1, verse 3. This is Paul saying to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So there was something going on in Ephesus that Paul had to say, make sure you guard against anybody teaching something that I haven't taught you. And a little later, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he instructs Timothy in this way, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What St. Paul has taught to Timothy, Timothy is to entrust other men who will teach others also. Four generations of Christians. This is the age of the apostolic church. And why was St. Paul so concerned about what was going on in Ephesus? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of the liars whose consciences are seared. Those weeds that our Lord had said would grow up. Verse 3. These men forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from food which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. What was St. Paul fighting against? He was fighting against the burgeoning heresy of Gnosticism. Those that attended Dr. Marshner's talks a a, a couple months ago or a month ago will remember he spoke of this. What was Gnosticism? To simplify it, they denied the goodness of creation and said it was not possible for the material world to be created by a good God. And therefore, they refused things like marriage, things like food, some would starve themselves to death, and so forth. Likewise, they could not accept the humanity of Jesus Christ. Further, they refused the Holy Eucharist, being the body of our Lord, the body and blood of our Lord. And so St. Paul, in these early days in Ephesus, was dealing with this issue, telling his son Timothy, appoint other men who can take the place after you, and still other men after them. Make sure the church is well guarded against this heresy. St. Timothy was martyred in the year 97, and St. John, the apostle, returned from exile from Patmos to be bishop of that city in the year 97. He lived to the year 100, sometime between 100 and 110, we're not sure. It was in this context that we meet for the first time St. Ignatius of Antioch. We know nothing of his life except that he appears after the death of the last apostle to have gained universal notoriety for his saintliness. He was called Theophorus, or God-bearer. In fact, we'll read that in his text. According to one legend, he was the boy who our Lord embraced in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. 
where it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Ignatius was the immediate successor or second in that line to St. Peter. He was a disciple, as I said before, along with St. Polycarp, who we'll study next week. He was a disciple of St. John the Beloved. And it is apparent from his epistles that he wrote that he was fighting in Asia Minor the very same heresy that both St. Paul and St. John had fought during their lives. I skipped the epistles of John, and i got to turn real quick to them. Um, Just before the book of Revelation, if you're with me, if you can go that fast, um, and I'll just read you a couple quick texts, because here is the, the Apostle John as he returns to Ephesus, he writes three epistles, are called the Catholic epistles, because they were, they were oriented to the whole church. And this is where, the way he begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes. Think the Gnostic heresy. By that time, Gnosticism had kind of, it t- had taken a number of different forms, okay, as heresies usually do. And in Asia Minor, the heresy of Docetism, a form of Gnosticism, had cropped up. The Docetists claimed, as their name indicates, that Christ only seemed to appear. That he was not actually in the flesh. He was an apparition. And so St. John says, we have seen him with our eyes. We have looked upon him. We have touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was from the Father. In his second epistle, he says in verse 7, for many, listen to this, this is, this is classic Gnosticism, okay? Not John, but who he's writing against. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. There you go. To these, he says to his his disciples, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the doctrine that Christ has come in the flesh, this is verse 10, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting at all. You remember that. We're going to hear that come up again in uh, in Ignatius' epistles. Okay, he was a disciple of this man. He read these epistles. He learned from him at his feet. So there you go. As Eusebius recounts in his famous ecclesiastical history, Ignatius was arrested in Antioch and sent to Rome where he would be martyred for the faith. Along the way, bishops, priests, deacons, and faithful would come to see him pass by. And when the cohort rested in Smyrna, the Episcopal See of Polycarp, His disciple, now become bishop of that city, Ignatius welcomed representatives from the great cities of Asia Minor in the south that his northerly route had not allowed him to visit. Now, who does not have their their, uh, map or their handout? Those that have it, take a look at your map, familiarize yourself with it. You can see the city of Antioch in Syria over to the right-hand side, and that line shows the route of or at least partially, the route of St. Ignatius as he was arrested in Antioch and taken to Rome. I'm going to read you a quick text from Dr. Carroll that will kind of contextualize this for us just a little bit. The year after Pliny expressed his worries about the Christians in 
in Bithynia. I read you the text from Pliny to Trajan, right? In 111. The year after he had expressed his worries to the emperor Trajan, war flared up in the east between Rome and Parthia over an old bone of contention, Armenia. Trajan made his base for military operations at Antioch. Okay, the emperor of the Romans went to Antioch and made it his military post. At dawn on December 13th in the year 115, a devastating earthquake struck Antioch. Great buildings cracked and tumbled. Thousands were killed, including one of Rome's consuls for that year. The emperor himself was injured. After shocks continued for days, as in Rome after the great fire of 64, the people found a scapegoat in the Christians and began denouncing them in large numbers. By his own rules, as he explained to Pliny, Trajan could not overlook such formal accusations. He had to condemn to death the accused who were found to be truly Christians. You have the map in front of you. You see the city of Antioch. You see as, um, as, uh, as Ignatius makes his way, he's arrested in Antioch, probably about 115, taken, and finally the, 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 the soldiers come to take a rest in the city of Smyrna. You find the city of Smyrna there? Okay, look, you'll find it. If you're under, you see the word province? Look under P. You see Smyrna there? He rests there, and that is the, 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 the Episcopal See of Polycarp, his friend, his disciple, and now the bishop of that city. And it's from that city that he writes a number of his epistles. He wrote his letter to the Ephesians from there, his letter to the Magnesians, the Trollians, and his most famous letter, which we're going to read a section of tonight, uh, to the Christians of Rome. These letters were to be taken back to their cities and read to the Christians there. The group then left Smyrna and traveled to a number of different stops, but ended up in Troas. If you look and you find, your, find the city of Troas, which is a seaside city, and they waited there to find a boat. And while they were waiting, Ignatius wrote three more letters. The letter to the church in Philadelphia. Okay, no, not our Philadelphia. Okay. The church in Philadelphia. Remember, that's one of the cities that John wrote to from the island of Patmos. His letter to the church in Smyrna, both the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia, he had stopped at. So in some sense, you can read them and you see that that Ignatius thanks them for his visit, right? And then instructs them further. And then finally, he writes his last letter to blessed Polycarp, his friend, his disciple, and now ruler of Smyrna, to say goodbye. What we're going to do is the first section is from the martyrdom of St. Ignatius, written by one of his disciples who watched it happen, who traveled with him. We'll read where it fits into the story, a section of his letter to the Romans. Okay? We'll go back to the martyrdom. We'll read a little section from the church, to, the, the letter to Smyrna, and then conclude with his actual martyrdom. Fair enough? I tried to piece this together for you as best I could, and I have the little ellipses there where I cut text out so you can fill it in later, Okay? When Trajan, not long since, succeeded to the empire of the Romans, Ignatius, the disciple of John the Apostle, a man in all respects of an apostolic character, governed the church of the Antiochians with great care, having with difficulty escaped the former storms of the many persecutions under Domitian, inasmuch as like a good pilot, 
by the helm of prayer and fasting, by the earnestness of his teachings, and by his constant spiritual labor, he resisted the flood that rolled against him, fearing only lest he should lose any, any of those who were deficient in courage or apt to suffer from his, their simplicity. Wherefore, he rejoiced over the tranquil state of the church when the persecution ceased for a little time, but was grieved as to himself that he had not yet attained to a true love to Christ, nor reached the perfect rank of a disciple. For he inwardly reflected that the confession which is made by martyrdom would bring him into a yet more intimate relation to the Lord. Wherefore, continuing a few years longer with the church, and like a divine lamp enlightening everyone's understanding, by his exposition of the Holy Scriptures, he at length attained to the object of his desire. For Trajan, in the ninth year of his reign, being lifted up with pride after the victory he had gained over the Scythians and Dacians and many other nations, and thinking that the religious body of the Christians were yet wanting to complete the subjugation of all things to himself, and thereupon threatening them with persecution unless they should agree to worship demons, as did all the other nations, thus compelled all who were living godly lives, either to sacrifice to idols or die. Wherefore, the noble soldier of Christ, Ignatius, being in fear for the church of the Antiochians, was in accordance with his own desire brought before Trajan, who was at that time staying at Antioch, but was in haste to set forth against Armenia and, and, Par and the Parthians. And when he was set before the emperor Trajan, that prince said unto him, Who are you, wicked wretch, who settest yourself to transgress our commands? and persuadest others to do the same, so that they should miserably perish. Ignatius replied, No one ought to call Theophorus wicked. Remember, he, call, he calls himself, and he's been named the God-bearer. For all evil spirits have departed from the servants of God, but if, because I am an enemy to those spirits, you call me wicked in respect to them, I quite agree with you. For inasmuch as I have Christ the King of heaven within me, I destroy all the devices of these evil spirits." Trajan answered, And who is Theophorus? Ignatius replied, He who has Christ within his breast. Trajan said, Do we not then seem to you to have the gods in our mind whose assistance we enjoy in fighting against our enemies? Ignatius answered, You are in error when you call the demons of the nations God. For there is but one God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that are in them, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, whose kingdom may I enjoy. Trajan said, Do you mean him who was crucified under Pontius Pilate? Ignatius replied, I mean him who crucified my sins with him who was the inventor of it, and who has condemned and cast down all the deceit and malice of the devil under the feet of those who carry him in their heart. Trajan said, Do you then carry within you him that was crucified? Ignatius replied, Truly so, for it is written, I dwell in them and walk in them. Then Trajan pronounced sentence as follows. We command that Ignatius, who affirms that he carries about within him, him that was crucified, be bound by soldiers and carried to the great city of Rome, there to be devoured by the beasts for the gratification of the people. When the holy martyr heard this sentence, he cried out with joy, I thank you, O Lord, that you have vouchsafed to honor me with a perfect love towards you and have made me to be bound with iron chains like your apostle, apostle Paul. Having spoken thus, he then with delight clasped the chains about him. And when he had first prayed for the church and commended it with tears to the Lord, he was hurried away by the savage cruelty of the soldiers, like a distinguished ram, the leader of a goodly flock, that he might be carried to Rome, there to furnish food to the bloodthirsty beasts. 
Wherefore, with great alacrity and joy, through his desire to suffer, he came down from Antioch to, to Seleucia, from which place he set sail. And after a great deal of suffering, he came to Smyrna, where he disembarked with great joy and hastened to see the holy Polycarp, formerly his fellow disciple and now bishop of Smyrna. For they had both in olden times been disciples of St. John the Apostle, being then brought to him and having communicated to him some spiritual gifts and glorying in his bonds, he entreated, him, entreated of him to labor along with him for the fulfillment of his desire, earnestly indeed asking this of the whole city, for the cities of the churches of Asia Minor had welcomed the holy man through their bishops and presbyters and deacons, all hastening to meet him, if by any means they might receive from him some spiritual gift. But above all, the holy Polycarp, that by means of the wild beast, he soon, disappearing from this world, might be manifest before the face of Christ. And these things he thus spoke and thus testified, extending his love to Christ so far as one who is about to secure heaven through his good confession and the earnestness of those who joined their prayer to his in regard to his approaching conflict, and to give a recompense to the churches who came to meet him through their rulers, sending letters of thanksgiving to them, which dropped spiritual grace along with prayer and exhortation. Wherefore, seeing all men so kindly affected toward him, and fearing lest the love of the brotherhood should hinder his zeal toward the Lord, while a fair door of suffering martyrdom was opened to him, he wrote to the church of the Romans, the epistle which is here subjoined. So I went ahead and cut this section of the epistle, and you'll hear her. I think this is the, the most important point of getting at who this great man was to get a sense of not only the heresies he fought and the theology he spoke of, but who was he to gain an insight into him, one of our church fathers. Ignatius, who is called Theophorus, to the church which, it, which has obtained mercy through the majesty of the Most High Father in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, the church which is beloved and enlightened by the will of him that wills all things, which are according to the love of Jesus Christ our God, which also presides in the place of the region of the Romans. This text, by the way, as we're reading this, and this next couple of phrases, very important um, to many theologians, pointing out the primacy which the Roman church enjoyed even here in the earliest days of the church. Listen to the honor which he gives to the church. Um, sorry, uh, where am I? Love of Jesus Christ, which, are, which, okay. which also presides in the place of the region of the Romans. Do you with me? Worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of the highest happiness, worthy of praise, worthy of obtaining her every desire, worthy of being deemed holy, and which presides over love is named from Christ and from the Father, which I also salute in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, to those who are united both according to the flesh and spirit, to every one of His commandments, who are filled inseparably with the grace of God and are purified from every strange taint. I wish abundance of happiness unblameably in Jesus Christ our God. Through prayers to God, I have obtained the privilege of seeing your most holy faces, worthy faces, and have even been granted more than I requested, for I hope as a prisoner in Christ Jesus to salute you, if indeed it be the will of God that I be thought worthy of attaining until the, unto the end. For the beginning has been well ordered, if I may obtain grace to cling to my lot without hindrance unto the end. For I am afraid of your love, lest it should do me an injury, for it is easy for you to accomplish what you please but it is difficult for me to attain to God if you spare me. 
Pray then, do not seek to confer any greater favor upon me than I than that I be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared, that being gathered together in love, you may sing praise to the Father through Christ Jesus, and that God has deemed me the bishop of Syria, worthy to be sent forth from east unto west. It is good to set from the world unto God, that I may rise again to him. I write to the churches and impress on them that I, am willingly, I shall willingly die for God unless you hinder me. What he's saying here is, he's saying, don't go starting something about that the Romans shouldn't sacrifice me. Don't go to their leaders and say, because I'm old, they should have mercy. Not at all. He says, I want to be sacrificed. So just pray and, and let it be. Okay? I beseech you not to show me an unseasonable goodwill towards me. Allow me to become food for the wild beasts through, those in, who's, through, through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Rather, entice the wild beasts, that they may become my tomb, and may leave nothing of my body, so that when I have fallen asleep in death, I may be no trouble to anyone. Then shall I truly be a disciple of Christ, when the world shall not see so much as my body." And treat Christ for me, that by these instruments I may be found a sacrifice to God. Let fire in the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shattering of the whole body, let the, all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Though I am alive while I write to you, yet I am eager to die. My love has been crucified and there is no fire in my my desiring in me desiring to be fed but there is within me a water notice the language here from john there is a water that lives and speaks saying to me inwardly come to the father i have no delight in the corruptible food nor in the pleasure of this life i desire the bread of god the heavenly bread the bread of life which is the flesh of jesus christ the son of god who became afterwards the seed of David and Abraham, and I desire the drink of God, namely His blood, which is incorruptible love and eternal life. Remember in your prayers the church in Syria, which now has God for its shepherd instead of me. Jesus Christ alone will oversee it, and your love will also regard it. But as for me, I am ashamed to be counted one of them, for indeed I am not worthy, as being the very last of them, and one born out, out of due time. But I have obtained mercy to be somebody, if I shall attain to God. My spirit salutes you in the love of the churches that have received me in the name of Jesus Christ, and not as a mere passerby. For even those churches which were not near to me in the way, I mean according to the flesh, have gone before me, city by city, to meet me. Now I write these things to you from Smyrna, by the Ephesians, who are deservedly most blessed. I have written these things unto you on the day before the ninth of the calends of September, that is on the 23rd day of August. Farewell to the end in the patience of Jesus Christ. Amen. Going then back for one sentence in the text of his martyrdom. Having therefore by means of this epistle settled as he wished those of the brethren at Rome who were unwilling for his martyrdom and setting sail from Smyrna, he next landed at Troas. So you'll find Troas again on your map there, that little seaside town, where he writes to the Philadelphians, to the Smyrnans, and a letter back to Polycarp, his friend. We're going to read just a section from his letter to the Smyrnans. 
Ignatius, who has called Theophorus to the church of God the Father. As we read this, again, we're turning now, and here he's going to attack Gnosticism head-on, Docetism specifically, those who said that Christ only seemed to appear, and you'll see the language. Ignatius, who has called Theophorus to the church of God the Father and of the beloved Jesus Christ, which has through mercy obtained every kind of gift, which is filled with faith and love and is deficient in no gift, most worthy of God and adorned with holiness, the church which is, in, which is at Smyrna in Asia wishes abundance of happiness through the Immaculate Spirit and the Word of God. I glorify God, even Jesus Christ, who has given you such wisdom, for I have obtained from you, for I have ob- observed that you are perfected in an immovable faith, as if you were nailed to the cross as our Lord Jesus Christ, both in the flesh and in the Spirit and are established in love through the blood of Christ, being fully persuaded with respect to our Lord, that he was truly the seed of David according to the flesh, and the Son of God according to the will and power of God, that he was truly born of the Virgin, was baptized by John in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, and was truly under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch nailed to the cross for us in his flesh. Of this fruit we are by his divinely blessed passion, that he might set up a standard for all ages through his resurrection to all his holy faithful followers, whether among the Jews or Gentiles, in the one body of his church. Now he suffered all these things for our sake, that we might be saved, and he suffered truly, even as also he truly raised up himself, not as certain unbelievers maintain, that he only seemed to, have to suffer, as they themselves only seemed to be Christians. And they... And as they believe, so shall it happen unto them, that they shall be divested of their bodies and be mere evil spirits. I give you these instructions, beloved, assured that you also hold the same opinion as I do. But I guard you beforehand from those beasts in the shape of men. And here he takes right from his, his master John, whom you must not, o- must, only not only receive, sorry, must not only not receive, but if it be possible, not even meet with, Only you must pray to God for them, if by any means they may be brought to repentance, which, however, will be very difficult. Yet Jesus Christ, who is our true life, has the power of effecting this. These persons neither have the prophets persuaded, nor the law of Moses, nor the gospel even to this day, nor the sufferings we have individually endured. But consider, now think as I'm reading this to you, why is it that Gnostics would have this problem that he's going to talk about? But consider those who are of a different opinion with with respect to the grace of Christ, which has come unto us. How opposed they are to the will of God. They have no regard for love, no care for widow, or the orphan, or the oppressed, or the bond, or the free, or the hungry, or the thirsty. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father of His goodness raised up again. See that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbytery, as you would the apostles, and reverence the deacons, as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is ministered either by the bishop or by one whom he has entrusted. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be." Even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. It is well to reverence both God and the bishop. He who honors the bishop has been honored by God. He who does anything without the knowledge of the bishop 
does in reality serve the devil. May my spirit be for you and my bonds, which you have not despised or been ashamed of, nor shall Jesus Christ, our perfect hope, be ashamed of you. The love of the brethren at Troas salutes you. Whence also I write to you, I salute your most worthy bishop Polycarp and your very venerable presbytery and your deacons, my fellow servants, and all of you individually as well as generally in the name of Jesus Christ and in the flesh and blood, in his passion and resurrection, both corporeal and spiritual, in union with God and you. Grace, mercy, peace, and patience be with you forevermore. Now we turn to the final section here, the account of his martyrdom. Then going on from Troas to Neapolis, he went on foot by Philippi through Macedonia, and finding a ship in one of the seaports, and sailing then into the Roman harbor, the unhallowed sports being just about to close. The soldiers began to be annoyed at our slowness, but the bishop rejoicingly yielded to their urgency. They pushed forth, therefore, from the place which is called Portus, and the, the fame of all relating to the holy martyr being already spread abroad, we met brethren full of fear and joy, rejoicing, indeed, because they were thought worthy to meet with Theophorus. But struck with fear because so eminent a man was being led to death, now he enjoined them, some, some to keep silence, who in their fervent zeal were saying that they would appease the people, so that they should not demand the destruction of this just one. He being immediately aware of this through the Spirit, and having saluted them all and begged of them to show a true affection towards him, and having dwelt on this point at greater length than in his epistle, and having persuaded them not to envy him hastening to the Lord, he then, after he had with all the brethren kneeling beside him, entreated the Son of God in behalf of the churches, that a stop might be put to the persecution, and that mutual love might continue among the brethren, was led with all haste into the amphitheater." Then, being immediately thrown in according to the command of Caesar, given some time ago, and turning to the people, the holy bishop said, Men of Rome, you know that I am sentenced to death, not because of any crime, but because of my love for God, by whose love I am embraced. I long to be with him and offer myself to him as a pure loaf made of fine wheat ground fine by the teeth of wild beasts. Thus he was cast to the wild beasts close beside the temple, that so by them the desire of the holy martyr Ignatius should be fulfilled according to that which is written. The desire of the righteous is acceptable to God, to the effect that he might not be troublesome to any of the brethren by the gathering of his remains, even as he had in his epistle expressed a wish beforehand that so his end might be. For only the harder portions of his holy remains were left, which were conveyed to Antioch and wrapped in linen as an inestimable treasure left to the Holy Church by the grace which was in the, in the martyr. Now these things took place in the 13th day before the calends of January, that is, on the 20th of December. Sura and Senecio, being then the consuls of the Romans for the second time, having ourselves been eyewitnesses of these things, and having spent the whole night in tears within the house, and having entreated the Lord with bended knee and much prayer that he would give us weak men full assurance respecting the things which were done. It came to pass on our falling into a brief slumber that some of us saw the blessed Ignatius suddenly standing by us and embracing us, while others beheld him again praying for us, and others still saw him dropping with sweat as if he had just come from his great labor and standing by the Lord. 
When therefore we had with great joy witnessed these things and had compared our several visions together, we sang praise to God, the giver of all good things, and expressed our sense of the happiness of the holy martyr. And now we have made known to you both the day and the time when these things happened, that assembling ourselves together according to the time of his martyrdom, we may have fellowship with the champion and noble martyr of Christ, who trod underfoot the devil and perfected the course which out of love to Christ he had desired. In Christ Jesus our Lord, by whom and with whom be glory and power to the Father and with the Holy Spirit forevermore. Amen. Again, we're going to keep this quick, and in, in the weeks coming, we're going to, uh, we won't have quite as long of an introduction because that kind of sets the scene for Polycarp also. And so we'll just spend a few minutes next week talking about Polycarp, um, but then get it right into the text, which will give us more time for discussion. General comments or thoughts? I have a question about this martyrdom. For a period of time, early Christians wanted to be martyred. When did that and when did the church say this is not a good idea? The church never said it's not a good idea. And likewise, also, the, the, it appears that, that Ignatius is seeking martyrdom, right? He's, he's almost taking it to himself. But in fact, it was never okay. And it, we'll read other things next week where Polycarp talks about this. You know, in some sense, you seek martyrdom because it more perfectly likens you to Christ, which is what he's talking about. But never would they take their own life. That's quite another thing. And this is an important aspect of, of Christ's own death, his own martyrdom, if you will. We get the funny idea that Christ kind of sought out his death and, and got up on the cross. And yes, we get that kind of language in the fathers. Willingly he died, but Christ was murdered. He was murdered. And we've got to understand that. Okay? They arrested him and murdered him. They arrested Ignatius and murdered him. And Ignatius would have rather stayed there with his church, but at the same time, he desired to be likened to Christ in everything. What is the source of the martyrdom? Yeah, it's, it's not clear, but the text itself um, it has been... Um, scholars have authenticated that it really is. There's all sorts of side authentications from other writings at the time. Okay, so there's ways to test whether this text is actually authentic, and it is. So it's considered to be one of the early church writings, and it appears to be from one of the men who traveled with him. We didn't have a chance to read everything, but there were these guys that were coming to him, as we saw, right, all the bishops and deacons, and then some of them were traveling along with him to go to Rome to see him martyred. So it's by one of these men who then ends up having this dream at night. Okay, they go back to wherever they're staying in Rome, and they're distraught. Okay, they're distraught. Their leader had died just like the apostles, and then he appears to them, and they're rejuvenated in their faith. So this is one of those, there's got to be more to the story. So in, in, the, in the story, it said that, that when they got to, to Smyrna, the, he, that uh, Ignatius went, went out to seek Polycarp, but he was under the arrest of the Romans. So how did that work? Yeah, most likely Polycarp came to him, okay? And clearly he had some freedom, okay? Look, he was an old man. We're going to get that again with Polycarp. Polycarp, I believe, 86 years old. Okay, when he was arrested. So there was some respect. The Romans had some respect for the, for the aged men and so forth. We didn't have a chance to read it, but he even said, he says, they were, oh, did we read that? They were beasts. The soldiers were like beasts, okay? And, and they mistreated him, but at the same time, clearly he had some freedom. I think it's really interesting about that immediately they took his bones, the relics back to, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, how many of those little images that we saw that are still practiced in the church, his feast day is still held on, the, on that day, the feast of his martyrdom in the church. Honored, so you say, well, the, the church honors saints. Well, the church honored saints back then. Okay, they held on to their relics. Why? Because these people had been likened to Jesus Christ, and they honored them because of their life, because of Christ's life in them. Not because of them as men, but them as participants in divine life. Okay, and this is why there's icons, relics of holy, of holy people. Okay, we just celebrated in the Roman church the, the feast of the chair of Peter. Because here's something that a holy person touched. And that holy person had become a Christian, a little Christ, a true participant in divine life. Uh, I'm a little confused because St. John, the beloved, said, you know, love one another. Yes. And in here it says, you know, you shall not even meet with them, you shall not even receive right. them. Yeah, how do we reconcile that? First of all, he's, he's, he's so concerned about his children. Do not, don't even take a chance with these people. I have the same feeling when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house, which I, I try to get them to come as much as possible. But, <laughs> but I won't let my kids be in the house. I will not let my kids be in the house. Okay, because I know what that destructive teaching can do to people. And I won't let them be in the house. So I tell my wife, take them away. They're going to be gone. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses come. My brother won't even let them come into the house. That was a practice, uh, traditional practice in the church. If you're going to meet them, meet them outside. Don't enter into your holy house because they're not part of the body of Christ. But he, look at the next sentence. What does he say? But pray for them because Christ can convert them. But I don't want you to take a risk. He knows these people. He knows what they're about. And at some point, the church says rightly, People need to be excommunicated. They're outside of the body of Christ. Okay. Anything about the text itself, about um, points you saw in it that were interesting? Were the unhallowed sports the Olympics? <laughs> uh, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Was that a serious question, Philip? Okay, it was the Olympics. I don't know. They were, what was going on was that uh, during, the, during the reign of Trajan, he opened up the, the games in Rome. It was kind of like these festal games, right? And I don't know exactly how the thing went, but they would throw people in there to be, and, then, and to be fed to the lions, and they would fight the lions. You've seen the things, the gladiatorial games and so forth. But during the reign of Trajan, he held the games for something, I can't remember, 122 days straight or something. And so they had to, he had to supply the meat. And so he's sending his, these, these people to Rome. Instead of martyrdom in Antioch, he sends them off to Rome so that he could have people to participate in that. Very different from our Olympics. Well, kind of. All this information that you have given to us, is it from the Penguin books, the early church? Is it from the book itself? The only text that's not in Penguin is the martyrdom account because uh, there, there is some debate over the, not the authenticity of the mark, but the dating of it. Where exactly can we date it? So can we really include it in the apostolic writings? Was it written during that time? Okay, or was this a text, a story that was handed on and written down 100 years later, 200 years later? It appears to me, it appears to be written uh, by the eyewitness. These were Christians. They, they bound themselves, as, as Pliny said, to uh, honesty. And so I, I take it for, on faith value for what it is. I want to, let me point out one thing, a comment. I get to make some comments, too. Um, that uh, the, the, this, this line of, of Gnosticism, which I think is so important, which for me when I was preparing for this talk, was it just opened my eyes because I've talked to Tom, uh, blue in the face, red in the face, whatever you want to do, turned colors, 
to the Jehovah's Witnesses on this point that the early church was the same church in the epistles. And that the scriptures, it's not like they got to the end, you know, the book of Revelation and it was written and they closed the book. Not at all. The church was much more alive and flexible. And so these early texts were, as I said earlier, were, were considered holy writings to be read. And what do we witness there? In the epistles, John is fighting Gnosticism as the second major heresy. Ju the Judaizers, the first ones. The second one, the Gnostics. John is fighting them. St. Paul's fighting them. Do you see? The early church held on to the, to the faith of the apostles, the faith of Jesus Christ. And let me go one step further, and I'll come back to you guys. We read the text in the letter to the Smyrnans. Turn there very quickly. The epistle to the Smyrnans, the second one we read. Did they abstain? There it is. They abstain. It's, it's about three quarters of the way down. They abstain from the Eucharist, right? Listen to this. The Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong by saying that the church lost its faith in, in the year about 100. And they're wrong because the, by the very evidence we just seen, it's the same doctrine. That's orthodoxy being taught right through the same issue. And the church is vibrant, alive, and defending it. That's number one. Number two, those that would claim that the early church may have been Catholic up until the year 300, 325, the conversion of Constantine, and so forth, have to deal with what the early church taught before that time. And what did it teach? This is, listen to this. In light of the Gnostic heresy, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up. If you want to claim that they're still talking symbolically, this very text destroys it because this text is against the Gnostics who are claiming that the Eucharist is simply symbolic. Okay. If there's any Protestants in the room, we can talk about baptism and, and the chrismation <laughs> later on. Okay. Any other comments? Well, so, so you just took, took one of mine away. As I say, it's amazing how this refutes a lot of the current attacks on, on Catholicism and Christianity. And, and that was one. So clearly from this, you know, the, the theology of the Eucharist was understood and taught, right? The other one that got my attention is, is that the resurrection of Jesus was just a myth, right? And, and it was clear from, this, from the writings that, that certainly, certainly the, the, the Romans clearly saw it as a historical fact, right? And, and, and you can see that in the writing. I mean, you guys got to keep reading this stuff, too. I hope you're not going to stop now, because I, I'm just, there was, there was just a couple tidbits, just a couple of them. He talks about the Eucharist as, as the, uh, the medicine of immortality, that which gives immortality, okay, the flesh of Jesus Christ. Okay, a couple other, just a couple others, and we got to close up here. What, I know that St. Stephen was the first martyr. What is uh, the time frame? When did that happen, and, and when did this happen? Uh, I guess Stephen was, would have been martyred sometime, I'm taking a guess, 35, 36, something very early. I'm taking a guess. Uh, Paul, St. Paul is martyred, and St. Peter martyred sometime in the 60s. So Paul's writing this epistle to Timothy in the 60s, and you can tell Paul's dealing with the Gnostics not quite as explicitly as John is, who's dealing with it 30 years later, because he's still, there's like a couple people that are hanging around saying kind of strange things. And so Paul's like, look, if anybody comes to you with strange stuff, like, and then and make sure that he says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and so forth, okay, and then he'll be okay. But by the time 30 years later when John's writing, 
John goes after it in his epistles, and then comes Polycarp, and Polycarp just rips him in half. After the baptism, excuse me, the baptism, we heard no more of St. John the Baptist. That's true. Now, St. John the Beloved and St. John the Apostle are the same, are they not? Yes. And he was at the foot of the cross. Yes. Now, where was St. John the Evangelist during all this? That is. The Apostle John is John the Evangelist. Oh, he is? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, it's a, I'm glad you brought that up because notice, he sees the crucifixion, right? He saw it happen, and he's willing to die for it. He's like, no, I don't care what you do to me. I saw it happen, and I saw him rise from the dead. I saw it with my own eyes. I touched him. Okay? You're not going to take that away from me. Okay? All right. Um, let's uh, conclude in prayer. I have for you the uh, proper hymn for the martyr Ignatius. It's, it's read in the Eastern, or sung in the Eastern Church. So I'm not going to sing. I'll read it to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By sharing in the ways of the apostles, you became a successor to their throne. Through the practice of virtue, you found the way to divine contemplation. O inspired one of God, by teaching the word of truth without error, you defended the faith, even to the shedding of your blood. O holy hero martyr Ignatius, entreat Christ God to save our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.